The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. Now, from our nation's capital, this is Bloomberg Sound On. I'm a little bit unimpressed of the discipline and the training level of the Russian forces. As bad and as horrific as this is, we want to make sure that we do not see an escalation. Bloomberg Sound On. Politics, policy, and perspective from D.C.'s top names. My sense is that commodity prices will remain very high, elevated, certainly over the next few months, probably the first half of the year. You Republicans want to give Democrats a victory on getting tough with China. On a political basis, the answer is no. Bloomberg Sound On with Joe Matthew on Bloomberg Radio. And the focus shifts to China. As President Biden prepares for his next call with President Xi, it's set for tomorrow morning. Welcome to the fastest hour in politics as we bring you the latest on the war in Ukraine and the pressure campaign to keep China out of Russia's corner. And as the China Competes bill languishes on Capitol Hill, does anyone remember the CHIP Act? We'll be talking about the economic implications, among other issues, ahead with Maya McGinnis, the president of the Committee for a Responsible Federal Budget. The House passed legislation a short time ago to strip Russia of its favored nation trade status And we'll talk sanctions with Brian O'Toole of the Atlantic Council, former advisor to the Treasury Department Sanctions Unit. What is left to sanction? We'll ask Brian ahead. And the panel, Bloomberg Politics contributor Rick Davis is with us today, along with Jim Kessler, Democratic strategist and co-founder of Third Way. President Biden will speak tomorrow. Bloomberg understands it will happen in the morning. Washington, D.C. time with Chinese President Xi Jinping as the... U.S. leader looks to shore up global pressure on Russia to halt its war in Ukraine. All of this comes back to the war. Remembering earlier this week, National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan met in Rome with his counterpart from China. They sat down for seven hours, and we still don't have a good sense of what was said beyond the idea of severe consequences. White House has never detailed what they are. Press Secretary Jen Psaki asked repeatedly in the briefing room today about what's going to happen on this call. The fact that China has not denounced what Russia is doing in and in, in of itself speaks volumes. And it also speaks volumes not only in Russia or in Ukraine, but around the world. And this call also comes, as, the, as Jake Sullivan's meeting earlier this week, as we have made clear our deep concerns about China's alignment with Russia and the potential implications and consequences of that. So the president will also share his assessment of that during the call. And this, of course, comes after the U.S. House voted overwhelmingly today. How about this? 424 to 8 to end regular trade relations with Russia, a move that would allow the U.S. to sharply hike tariffs on whatever goods are still coming in. And there aren't that many because we ban the oil and gas, we ban the vodka, the caviar. What else do they make again? So it got me thinking about this China competes legislation that's been sitting on the shelf for months In the Congress, Senate has a version, House has a version. There's still no conference committee. The Secretary of Commerce has been calling for this to be passed since last fall, maybe earlier. Remember, this is the CHIP Act inside this bill that would send tens of billions of dollars to create domestic chip manufacturing. And as we keep hearing, help us compete more prominently with China. 
economic implications here? Just days after this budget was passed, can we get it together on this? That's where we begin our conversation today. With Maya McGinnis, the president of the Committee for a Responsible Federal Budget. Maya, welcome back. It's great to have you. Did D's and R's ever figure this out? If this is the cause of our time, will there be a legislative answer to competing with China? You know, it's a great question, and I am always so gloomy about the terrible partisanship and polarization in Congress. Hmm. But I actually think we are in a moment where there is some tiny renewed amount of hope. And it's always, many of us have always wondered, you know, what kind of an external threat will it take to unify our Congress? COVID clearly didn't do it. But what we're seeing in Russia and competition from China, both of those are having a different effect. And I think that there is a renewed interest in really cooperating on dealing with our competitive positions. So um, I would rarely call myself an optimist on much of anything these days, but in, in this place, I actually say there is some hope. It's hard to tell what's holding this thing up, to be honest with you. It seemed like it was a bipartisan effort uh, in the outset. But then the two versions took different courses. Republicans had trouble uh, accepting the House version. Are we going to actually see an old-fashioned conference committee get this done, Maya? I think we will. I think the thing that is most likely against is just how busy the schedule is with absolute emergencies right now. Yeah, right. Um, and, you know, sometimes Congress is a little bit like toddlers and soccer balls where they all run to the one thing that's that, getting attention, and that's where leadership is. But I do think there's room for this to happen this year, and I don't think there's going to be a lot of important legislation that that passes, but I think this is one of the areas you could see progress. A big one passed last week, and it's interesting because it was the tree that fell in the woods, apparently. We talked endlessly about this $1.5 trillion omnibus. The thing passes, and everyone thinks it was a Ukraine aid bill, uh, Maya, which was really a pretty small fraction of that overall number. This unlocks money from infrastructure, right? This does a lot that actually could help the economy in a troubled moment. What's your view on that? Well, the first point that I would make is that this was a bill to fund the government that came nearly half a year too late. Sure did. Right? I mean, this is what what is really astounding is that we are often operating without an actual budget in place, and that gets almost no attention, whereas that should be so appalling that any CEO or small business owner who tried to run their business without a budget would promptly be fired. Uh, Me too. The head of a nonprofit would be fired. And yet we do that as a country. And so the fact that this passed midway through the year funded the government. It didn't even do it in the right way where you go through each of the appropriations and really oversee what's working and target your resources. This was just, again, and another kind of big omnibus through everything in this one and a half trillion dollar budget. And it was about a 6% increase, which is huge at normal times and leads to about actually half a trillion dollars in additional spending over a decade, given what we were projecting before. But at the same time, that sort of reflects the high inflation that we were seeing this year. Yeah. So it's not a, a huge increase in the spending. I don't know what I'd say about the effects on the economy, because right now, the big concern from where we sit is both inflation, that is the result in large part of over overborrowing, which we saw at the end of some of the COVID relief, mm-hmm. and what that effect could be on interest rates. Because when you're as over-indebted as we are, small increases in interest rates yes. lead to big increases in interest And so I think we're in a very, very tough situation, kind of walking the tightrope of the economic conditions. So there's the backdrop from Maya McGinnis. Now, you had the Fed meeting yesterday. We got our the liftoff has happened and it looks like we could be in for another half dozen hikes, potentially, Maya. You've got uh, WTI and, of course, my God, the, the prices that we saw 
earlier this week were were absolutely wild. Where did we finish today? One hundred and three dollars uh, for West Texas crude. Brent has been higher than that. This is a real issue for this president. We know it's going to be a long term solution, most likely, unless the supply chain somehow resolves itself in the next couple of weeks here, Maya. Are you concerned that the Fed hiking, along with the inflation that we're seeing, the slowing of the economy, ends us in a recession in the end of this year or the beginning of next year? I think one would be foolish not to take that as a serious threat and have a real consideration. And I think we, again, we're kind of in a very difficult corner because we have this huge amount of inflation, which which has been, people have been slow to catch on how permanent it was and how high it could be, mm-hmm. but also because we have this massive debt at $30 trillion total, $23 trillion debt owed to the public, um, every increase in interest rates leads to the higher interest payments, which contributes to a lot of pressure on our budget and possibly pushing us back in a recession. So and what's so more important, fighting inflation or keeping the yeah. economy growing? I mean, they're both. They're both important. Obviously, they neither one is one that you want to, to not be able to do. And I guess what's frustrating is we, we put ourselves in a situation that got us caught between these two in large part because of our reckless borrowing in the past. And now that makes fixing it more difficult, more di- much more difficult. I think when you have two important goals like both of those, fighting inflation and not pushing yourself back in recession, yeah. what you will see is the Fed have to kind of land somewhere in the middle of what you would do to fight either on its own. Okay. And so that's probably the right compromise, and it's not good enough to do a full job on either end. But we don't have any good choices. But I think the takeaway is as much attention as monetary policymakers are getting right now, mm-hmm. it's the fiscal policymakers that put us in such a difficult situation, leaving the Fed with very few ideal choices. We're hearing about gas prices every day in Washington. This is one of the real issues that Republicans have used to ding the administration and Democrats at large as we head for the midterm elections. Is this gas tax holiday idea going anywhere? I don't think so, and I don't think it should. I don't think that that's something. I don't think it will make a real difference at the price at, at the pumps, and so I don't think it will have a lasting effect. I think it will be incredibly costly. And if you look at where we are with inflation coming from high levels of demand, lower levels of supply, and external shocks, there's actually very little that you can do in terms of targeted relief that way that's going to have a sustained effect on creating relief. Um, And the hard part is that fighting inflation means you don't want, you want to diminish demand. And the ways that you do that can be painful for consumers. There's no getting out of this pain-free. And listen, in Washington, we are constantly looking for free lunch, magic thinking scenarios where you can have everything and it doesn't cost anything. Um, and this is one of those moments where sort of the truth will emerge that it's not going to be painless, unfortunately. Kind of like releasing barrels from the strategic reserve. Uh, quick sugar high, and then you're right back where you were. Yeah, not a sustainable policy. It may be smart to think about for you know temporary moments, but you have to put it in terms of perspective, which is what we're going to need is real structural changes, rebalancing in the economy, and they're not going to come easy. Maya McGinnis, we talked about the China competes bill. You suggested it might be one of the only things that could pass this year. Is there anything else from the economic agenda that came from this White House? My goodness, we're not very far past the State of the Union here when we got the the, the kitchen sink list 
from Joe Biden about all of these ideas from paid leave to the expanded child tax credit. Does any of this see the light of day in a midterm election year? The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. Yeah, I don't think it's a big, huge spending element. And remember, they were for $2 trillion, or if you got rid of gimmicks, closer to double that in terms of spending, which is a massive amount. I don't think that those have any momentum at all. I think what Senator Manchin put out there was really interesting, which was to flip this approach on its head and look at whether there's a way you could use the revenue that were were agreed to. There's about $2 trillion of revenue in the House bill, and take that – and split it between using it for deficit reduction and climate and so a few of the other policies, but with a focus on climate. That has a real advantage of being good for the inflationary situation, good for the fiscal situation, yep. and still accomplishing a lot of spending at a time when there's not a lot of room in the budget. But- Maya McGinnis, Committee for a Responsible Federal Budget. We always learn something when we talk to Maya, and we appreciate your insights. We'll assemble the panel next. Rick Davis and Jim Kessler on the way. This is Bloomberg. My grandfather, Ambrose Finnegan, used to say, and I mean this, he'd say, Joey, if you're lucky enough to be Irish, you're lucky enough. <laughs> like an exquisite landscape imbued with 40 shades of green. Like Irish soda bread and the endless cups of tea. And Irish step dancing and the presence of Guinness and Jameson are only an Irish jig away. Bless me, Father, for I'm about to sin. <laughs> I, uh... <laughs> well, I just want you to know, I may be Irish, but I'm not stupid. I married Dominic Giacoppa's daughter. <laughs> we are particularly mindful of the exiled people of the Ukraine who are in need of hope and peace, healing, and safe passage. Did I forget to say happy St. Patrick's Day? I think I did. But I am wearing a green tie today. Those are sounds from earlier on Capitol Hill, where President Biden spoke at a St. Patrick's Day luncheon, even though the tea shock didn't make it. You probably heard by now the Irish Prime Minister is in isolation at Blair House, just across the street from the White House. After he tested positive for COVID last night, had to bail on an event. They were in the middle of a dinner. So he had to join President Biden this morning by Zoom. Well, thank you very much indeed, uh, President. And um, last year, uh, we met virtually across the Atlantic. Uh, This year, we're meeting virtually across the road. (laughs) So we're getting closer. They could have shouted up the windows at each other. Thanks for joining us on Bloomberg Sound On. I'm Joe Matthew in Washington. It's time to assemble the panel. After speaking with Maya McGinnis, we bring in Bloomberg Politics contributor, Republican strategist Rick Davis, along with Jim Kessler, Democratic strategist, co-founder of Third Way, former legislative policy director for Senator Chuck Schumer. You guys spent a little bit of time together on Capitol Hill, so we're kind of putting the band back together. Uh, Rick, your thoughts on the phone call tomorrow with China this is the first time that the presidents, Biden and she, have spoken or will be since November. And 
a very different world that we're living in here following the meeting earlier this week in Rome. Uh, how, how difficult is this conversation going to be about Russia's war in Ukraine? Yeah, let's just say this is not a routine call. Yeah. Uh, Jake Sullivan had a seven-hour session with his counterpart, and we got virtually no readout whatsoever. So uh, the, the chips are all in the middle of the table on this one. Uh, China is, as you mentioned earlier in the show, they, they haven't denounced Russia. They haven't, they've got a lot of alignment with them right now. They're the biggest question in the world because they are going to be forced by President Biden to probably choose – with a relationship with Russia or the United States? Do you want your largest trading partner to be in good shape with you, or do you want someone who actually doesn't matter whatsoever to your economy uh, to ruin your image uh, around the globe? And I think this is, a, this is one where Biden's going to earn his pay uh, on this phone call. Jim, I don't know if they're going to be talking for seven hours uh, like, like their lieutenants were earlier this week, uh, their diplomatic lieutenants, that is. But I just... I wonder what you see here as the motivator for China. If it comes down to money, it's going to be a pretty simple uh, a question for President Xi, no? Yeah, look, I, I, I saw two things this week that were very interesting and a, and a little bit sort of diametrically opposed. So there was an op-ed in the Washington Post by the Chinese ambassador to the United States, Chin Gong. Mm-hmm. And basically, in that piece, you know, you could you could look at that and think like, it was sort of benign, in fact, maybe even leaning a little bit towards Ukraine. Then if you look at what is in Chinese language newspapers that people in China see, so it's you know the, the mouthpiece of the government yep. for Chinese people, there's generally not a ton about Ukraine in there, but lately there's been a little bit more and it's leaning more in the direction of Russia. So the domestic consumption is preparing a little bit more for siding on the Russian side. The, what we just saw in the Washington Post was siding a little bit more on the Ukraine-America side. But, you know, I mean, this is a big decision for China because they didn't expect to be in this position right now. I'm sure they didn't. Uh, Rick, we talked with Maya about the China Competes bill. I think it's had five different names since it was actually called that. But the CHIP Act, this was supposed to be a major priority at the end of last year. It seemed like Democrats and Republicans were together on it until a certain point. Things broke down. Is it going anywhere? Yeah, I think I would agree with what Maya said, which is if there's something that's going to get done this year in a bipartisan fashion that isn't related specifically Mm -hmm. to the war in uh, Ukraine, I think this is it. Uh, For a lot of different reasons, everybody's for doing something around China competitiveness. Uh, Maybe the hardest thing is to name what the new bill is going to be because they've been all around the park on this one. But when you've got $50 billion out there to help spur chip Uh, development here in the United States, and you still have supply chain problems this late into COVID, Mm -hmm. uh, you've got to act. I mean, this will be a pox on all their houses if they go home and try to run for reelection and don't have something to show for this. After all the talk, Jim, what does your former boss, uh, Senator Chuck Schumer, do to get this in conference committee, get it to the floor? Well, first of all, if Mike McGinnis and Rick Davis both think it's going to pass, they're two of the smartest minds in Washington. (laughs) I'm not going to argue it's going to pass. It sounds like we have three. Yes. The the issue on this bill. So there's between Democrats and Republicans, there's a lot of violent agreement on the competes bill, formerly the Endless Frontiers Act, formerly some other name. But on how you the, the legislative language, there is a lot of wrangling and there's a lot of differences not between Democrats and Republicans, but between the House and the Senate. Right. And right. what really has to happen is the, the 
the house which feels like it's been rolled on almost every other major yeah. piece of legislation jim really i'm sorry like- we're out of time but we're going to reassemble the panel let you finish the thought Jim Kessler and Rick Davis. Russia is on its way to joining a very exclusive club. After the House passed legislation to end what's known as most favored nation trade status that would put it, assuming the Senate passes this, it's expected to, put it in the category with North Korea and Cuba. As we learn more about sanctions, we turn to Brian O'Toole, senior fellow at the Atlantic Council's Geoeconomic Center, former advisor, to the Treasury Department sanctions unit with more calls on Capitol Hill for additional sanctions and a promise for more sanctions from President Biden just as recently as yesterday. Brian, welcome back to Bloomberg. Thanks for having me. So the House has passed this legislation to end normal trade relations with Russia, uh, what we used to call most favored nation status. Uh, I know that means significantly higher tariffs, but we've already banned a lot of Russian imports, Brian. What impact then will this actually have on Moscow? Yeah, my, my understanding is the impact is relatively limited here. I think it gives the ability to impose significantly higher tariffs. Um, but they've already, you know, the Biden administration has already shut off oil imports, um, which are kind of the, the biggest ticket item, um, as well as uh, non-industrial diamonds and mm-hmm. fish and seafood, which I think is basically code for caviar. Yeah, caviar um, and vodka. And, so what, I mean, what else do we buy from them? Um, you know, I'm not sure there's that much else. It's um, so this sounds kind of a, like a symbolic gesture by the Congress. I, I think I think to a certain degree it is. I think you know, in my understanding too of the situation is that what we do import from Russia, um, there isn't as much of a, a significant differentiation in the tariff rates between MFN, the most favored nation status, and the non-MFN status. Um, so there's there's limited impact there, but it does give the ability to impose higher tariffs if they want. Um, mm-hmm. I suspect there probably isn't going to be a lot of value in doing so. And, you know, subject to challenge at WTO and all of those sure. kinds of things may, may make it politically difficult for them. Um, so it may be, as you say, kind of more symbolic than anything else. But I think as my, my colleague Dan Freed has said before, symbols matter sometimes. Well, that's fine. And I, I realize that Congress had to codify what the president had essentially proposed last week. So we've got it here. 242, uh, make that 424 to 8 is the vote. But I keep asking this question, Brian, because largely Republicans are criticizing President Biden for not doing enough, not early enough when it comes to sanctions. But what else is left to sanction other than seizing more yachts from oligarchs? A whole lot, actually. Um, if you think about this on a continuum of like zero to 100 um, percent, the kind of sanctions pain meter if you will, the sanctions on Russia are somewhere around 65 to 70. Okay. Iran is, is about 95 by comparison's sake, right? The, the impact of the Russia sanctions on a like dollar level is higher because they're just starting from an astronomically higher place than, sure. than Iran economically, but but there's still quite a lot left, right? They could sanction the stock markets. They could sanction other banks. They could sanction individuals and companies. Um, they could fully ban um, and go for secondary sanctions on oil trading and put, you know, the, the kind of ultimate piece of this is a full financial embargo on Russia. And they're, they're not there. They're not necessarily that close, given that there is still a lot of private enterprise in Russia that is allowed to transact with the U.S., even if the, some of the major conduits have been cut off. So if you were still at Treasury and, and dealing with sanctions, what would your advice be to the administration? Is there a reason to be holding back on the other 30 percent? 
I mean, look, the the idea of using sanctions as a deterrent falls in line with all over all other kind of uses as a deterrent effect in, in some respects or a a kind of tit for tat escalation ladder. And they they do, you know, they do need options if Russia ups the ante to a certain extent. Right. So I, I would imagine some of these are held in reserve, knowing that they might have to respond to other Russian provocations beyond the the horrible, horrible status quo. Tell us about secondary sanctions. Uh, This is something that's being proposed again, largely by Republicans on the Hill. How would they be implemented? When you start introducing other countries, how much more difficult is that to actually draw the document and get it passed? Uh, They've already done it. Um, So they did it in CAPSA back in 2017 when they were trying to prevent Donald Trump from lifting sanctions on Russia unilaterally. It's a matter of kind of implementing an enforcement as much as anything else. Um, and Congress is fond of kind of reinforcing stuff that they've done in the past yep. with more current legislation. They could do with some clarification. So we might um, refine maybe, that with another piece of legislation. Is any of this making a difference? Are there any signs that Vladimir Putin's behavior has shifted with, with each layer of sanctions? So this is this is where the expectation of what the impact is going to get you, I think, diverges from from person to person. Sanctions, in my view, and, and as others have said, sanctions don't stop tanks, right? So they're not necessarily going to halt the Russian army in Ukraine. Um, President Biden said this initially, that sanctions are meant to isolate and ostracize President Putin and the entirety of the Russian economy, essentially, at this point. Mm-hmm. Um, that's what the design is for. That's a longer-term effect, perhaps, than, than the war may last in Ukraine. And so that that is something where there is certainly effect, there is certainly ostracization, and, you know, Uzbekistan is now saying that this, this invasion should stop and that they're not going to recognize these two breakaway republics in, in Ukraine. Yeah. So, you know, they are rallying the world around it. Now, what does that mean for the people on the ground in Ukraine is, is a different question. Um, well, that's right. Some, some tentatively, uh, very tentatively promising um, kind of uh, returns from some of these peace talks. Um, Zelensky has seemed to suggest that they may be going in the right direction or they're starting to become more constructive. Yeah. Sanctions certainly play a, a role in, in making the Russians feel like they need to be constructive to the extent that they are being. That they are being constructive. But as an expert on um, sanctions, I, I remain, Brian, can you can you say that this will have a greater impact on the people as usual than it would on the the, the positions of power than it would on Vladimir Putin? I think the the impact to Russian consumers will be sharper, perhaps, than it will be on Vladimir Putin and his centers of power at least in the immediate term. That sh- that may change over the longer term if Putin is unable to sustain the kleptocratic regime that he sits on top yeah. of because they just don't have enough money to do it. Brian O'Toole, senior fellow at the Atlantic Council's Geoeconomic Center, former advisor to the Treasury Department Sanctions Unit. We appreciate your time with us once again on Bloomberg. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. 
You're listening to Bloomberg Sound On with Joe Matthew on Bloomberg Radio. We're hearing words like cleansing and purification today from Moscow. Vladimir Putin saying that the Russian people will always be able to tell the patriots from the scum and traitors that spit them out, he said, like a midge that accidentally flew into their mouths. He's not talking about Americans. He's talking about Russians. I'm convinced, he says, this is a national address. This natural and necessary self-cleansing of society will only strengthen our country. Solidarity, cohesion, and readiness to meet any challenge. This thing is going off the rails. As we reassemble the panel, Rick Davis is with us, of course, Bloomberg Politics contributor and spending time as well today with Jim Kessler, the co-founder of Third Way. Rick, this is the Vladimir Putin we've talked about a lot here. Uh, This type of language is shocking to most people. Apparently, they're not even trying to hide what's going on here uh, with the messaging we're hearing. But politically speaking, uh, at a certain point, as I read now, some 15,000 Russians have been detained uh, for opposing the war, for holding protests and so forth. Does it end up being the people of Russia who are also suffering through these sanctions be the ones that end this, that that turn on Vladimir Putin? Joe, I think you just nailed it. This is the change that Putin is worried about, not taking over Ukraine or losing a battle for an airport. Hmm. It's what goes on at home. And that's why he's got uh, twice as many secret police on the streets uh, than he does have troops in Ukraine wow. trying to quell the disturbances that are cropping up in virtually every city in Russia. So, look, I mean, this is the thug we know, and now the people of Russia realize that he's more dangerous than they thought. And I think we only are beginning to see uh, the first stages of domestic unrest, which, as you say, is probably the only thing that can stop this war. How big does that need to get, Jim? As I mentioned, 15,000 anti-war protesters have already been detained. Is that the way this ends with an uprising in Russia? Possibly it's the way some previous Russian governments have ended before. I think, you know, one of the things that I find interesting about what Putin said, besides the horror of it, number one, that doesn't sound like someone who's winning. That sounds like someone who's losing. And number two is there is a narrative that both Russia and China have echoed, which is that the 21st century is one where democracies are going to fail, that that an autocracy model is really the way to succeed. And what we're seeing right now is the weaknesses in that autocracy model, because within a month, Putin went from being a strongman to someone who seems very afraid. Yeah. How do we fan the flames there, uh, Rick, or the sanctions uh, the way this happens? I know that some look at that as sort of collateral damage, but is that actually the point to to essentially get them to to feel the pain enough that they say, we got to get rid of this guy? Yeah, we've heard from others on the impact of uh, some of these sanctions are uh, tougher on the people of Russia than they are on Vladimir Putin directly. Mm -hmm. Obviously, some are targeted just to Vladimir Putin. But these sanctions are having an impact on the population. And they are not going to blame the United States for those sanctions. They're going to blame Vladimir Putin Mm -hmm. for having those sanctions put on them because of his solitary decision to to enter a war with the Ukraine uh, in And I think that is the key propaganda tool that the West needs to use to make sure everybody in Russia understands this is on Putin's head. We don't want to do this, but this is the only thing that we think can affect change with Vladimir Putin. 
Jim, if we're talking about secondary sanctions or or further sanctions on Russia itself, as we just discussed uh, a little bit ago with Brian O'Toole, does that need to be a, a legislative uh, product, or is this something that the president should be doing through executive orders through the Treasury Department? I, it, what role does Congress need to play in that? Usually this is done through the executive branch, and yeah. then Congress a lot of times echoes it and, and puts it into law, which makes sanctions harder to undo so that so they have a greater impact on it um you know they're probably holding some sanctions in reserve to have more chips to throw into the mm-hmm. pot here i think probably the most important thing is how do you break the news barrier so that ordinary russians are really hearing what's going on yeah right and th- that's probably the thing that needs to happen the demands though jim are coming from capitol hill in many cases it's republican lawmakers can they continue to push the administration through legislation? Well, you know, some of these same Republican lawmakers were really not all that interested in Ukraine, you know, not too long ago. So, you know, it's good that they've, they've come on board, but there was quite a few who really were arguably on the other side. This is something that Biden can say internationally to Xi Jinping. He can say it in back channels to Vladimir Putin, which is, mm-hmm. I will not be able to stop um, public opinion in the United States and Congress from imposing either greater sanctions and more military activity. So I think it's something that Biden can use, you know, as he is trying to strangle Putin. How about it, Rick Davis? Legislative sanctions. We heard from Kevin McCarthy and others yesterday referring to the fact that, you know, we've been pushing this White House wouldn't have happened unless Nancy Pelosi, for instance, forget Republican, Democrat, it was Nancy Pelosi who really dropped the gauntlet on banning Russian gas and oil, correct? Do we see another round come from that end of Pennsylvania Avenue, or is it going to be from the Treasury again? Yeah, I think that it's, it's going to come from both sides. I mean, I think uh, Jim reflects, I think, the thinking a lot of Democrats have, which is to use the public support for this war, which is really amazingly high, mm. uh, as a whipping boy for uh, uh, having these sanctions. I, I hope that, that the president, when he talks to Chi tomorrow, says, I am taking a leadership role. I'm directing the, the, the campaign against Russia from here. Mm-hmm. I don't need the American people to be on my side. They're never going to understand what a secondary sanction is. Right. But I'm going to tell you right now, my, my comrade, that if, if, we, if we see the one single drone go from China to Russia, mm-hmm. there will be secondary sanctions, which means I will sanction anyone doing business with China banks. Uh, and that will raise a lot of the hackles in Beijing oh, and get them thinking about this, you know, cozy relationship they have with yeah. the guy who spits flies out of his mouth. <laughs> Jim, how important is this call to move in the ball here uh, tomorrow? Is there a chance that the president can convince Beijing to actually act as a mediator? Maybe President Xi makes a phone call, as Rick Davis said to Vladimir Putin, to say, listen, I can't afford this. you got to get this done. That's possible. And, you know, Rick pointed out in the earlier segment, there was a seven hour meeting between principals, um, high level principals in China and the United States. And there wasn't a single readout of that meeting. I mean, that's how. Well, there was a readout, but it was about a sentence long. They won't tell us what happened in in that meeting. It was a fake readout. Um, (laughs) So for China, being in a mediation role outside of Asia is a very new thing. It is something that they are not practiced at. 
but if China wants to be a leader on the world stage, commensurate to its economic power right now, this is the time for them to weigh in and say to Vladimir Putin, this is not working. Find a graceful way to get out of there. Are we going to get a readout on this call, Rick? Uh, I guarantee you, uh, Joe Biden, who is not used to secrecy, <laughs> uh, will at least make his comments known. And if I know the Chinese, they'll probably have a press release out long before uh, we get an indication from the White House. Everyone's going to want to position this. I, I, I firmly believe that the Chinese want to play a constructive role. And, and I think they wanted to play a constructive role for Vladimir Putin when he left the Olympics. Yes, right. Uh, but I think he's put them in such an awkward spot it's a that, different world. that they can't come out of this meeting looking like they're taking sides. Yes, they don't right. have to take our side, but they can't take his either. How about when it comes to China buying Russian oil, Rick? You know, look, I mean, Russia's going to find a buyer for their oil, yeah. right? And, 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 and it's okay from my perspective uh, if 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 China buys what they've been buying, if China takes advantage of the the glut now that exists right. for Russian uh, oil takes, and they think they can get a discount, which everyone is getting, uh, then I think those those clamps have got to go on. The, wow. the, the the Biden administration has to say, look, we're not, we we took the position that buying Russian oil was like giving money to the war machine. Mm-hmm. If that's what we're doing, then what is China doing? Mm-hmm. Could that be done uh, codified? In legislative form, Jim, or is that does that need to come from the administration? No, I don't think there's anything. I, I don't know if it's possible to really codify anything that is going to be punishing China right now. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the best strategy would be to try and cajole China to play a holistic role as possible on this. I, a lot of I vested interests here. Two front sanctions. And a lot of money on the line. Jim Kessler, thank you. Rick Davis, as always, our panel for today on Sound On. Fascinating insights as ever. And we'll do this again tomorrow after the call. Make sure you join us on Friday. March is Women's History Month, and we want to get today's installment from Renita Young. On this day in women's history in 1969, Golda Meir is elected as Israel's first female prime minister. She was only the country's fourth prime minister. Meir began her career as a Zionist labor organizer. Later on, she held several positions within the Israeli government, including Minister of Foreign Affairs and Minister of Labor. And upon the sudden death of Prime Minister Levi Eshkol in 1969, Meir was chosen as his successor. During her career, Mayer gained a reputation as a savvy diplomat. She saw the country through the Yom Kippur War in 1973 after Syria and Egypt launched a surprise attack on Israel. And partially due to her ailing health and age, Mayer resigned in October 1974. That's Today in Women's History. I'm Renita Young, Bloomberg Radio. Renita, thank you. And you just got to the end of the fastest hour in politics. It goes by awfully quick. And we've got one more this week. Keeping our ear out for news on the call tomorrow. See you then. This is Bloomberg. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com.